0: We were born dead. Life means nothing. We live with death every single day. Death walks with us. Death rides and sleeps with us. We carry its smell under our skins. So don't go blaming yourself.
1: Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1990 The Bronx Warriors from the year 1982. Oh, wait, what? Okay, so the year is 1982, and the Italian director... Enzo G. Castellari has created a movie about a section of New York that has been turned into a penal colony, and there is someone important who is lost in that penal colony, and someone is hired to get them out of said place. Now, this is not the same thing as Escape from New York, even though the plot I just described is beat for beat Escape from New York. This is a bit different because it's also got multiple gangs in it. Which may sound like the film The Warriors, but that was back in the 70s. Now we're in the 80s. And the movie is called 1990, colon, The Bronx Warriors. Are you thoroughly confused yet?
2: Well, a little tiny bit. I have this memory of watching a YouTuber. I can't remember who it was. I can't remember if it was a nostalgia type thing or just a reviewing old movies. But they reviewed what I thought was this movie. Do you remember what I remember?
1: I do not. Okay. I watch a lot of YouTube. I know.
2: So perhaps what I'm remembering that I thought I watched a review of is The Warriors from the 70s. So I'm beginning to think that I have absolutely no idea what we're watching today.
1: Well, this movie that we are watching today, we are specifically watching it because it was requested by one of our $5 a month Patreon contributors. So thank you, Curtis, for suggesting this movie to us. For anyone that hasn't checked out our Patreon lately, if you contribute at the $5 level, you get to ask for a specific movie for us to cover during hiatus. That is one of the perks of being a $5 contributor. There's also the ability to contribute to my notes before we actually record the episode. All of that information is on Patreon. You're going to hear it in the outro just like you hear it in every other outro. As for this movie, it was directed by Enzo G. Castellari. The story was written by Dardano Sacchetti. The screenplay was by... Castellari, Sacchetti, and Elisa Briganti, all Italian team, including the writer credited with doing the Bronx dialogue, Anton Pagan. So this is a Italian perspective on an American setting, but it's also kind of post-apocalyptic gang warland type of thing. That's what I've been able to glean from the couple of trailers I've seen and I read up a little bit of background information about the production. Okay. It stars Mark Gregory, Fred Williamson, and Vic Morrow. As far as the background for this movie is concerned, the idea for the film was first envisioned by producer Fabrizio De Angelis when he missed a subway stop for his Manhattan hotel and ended up in a dangerous neighborhood in the Bronx. De Angelis stated he imagined the idea of a futuristic city where young hoods would fight for their home. And so, you have 1990, The Bronx Warriors, which was one of three science fiction films that Enzo G. Castellari made with De These films take influence from Mad Max 2 in 1981, The Warriors in 1979, and Escape from New York in 1981. All movies that we've mentioned in some way or another before. Castellari changed some of DeAngelis' plot ideas while filming, including incorporating more weird gangs, such as a roller skating gang, and when he is discussing 1990 The Bronx Warriors, The New Barbarians and Escape from the Bronx, that's a list of three films, by the way, he states that those three films were written, prepared, and filmed all in six months. So he did the Peter Jackson film it all at once thing. Okay, Just on a much smaller scale.
2: So the three movies, are they meant to work together?
1: I believe so. This is the first of a three movie set. This is his Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is his Fellowship of the Ring. This is the jumping off point for a larger world that he has constructed for the movie going public.
2: Okay. I find that idea hopeful because I generally like the first movie in a series the best. I like it when things are more simple, while there's more exposition, more world building, as opposed to when you start getting down the line, then things have been building and getting more complicated. I like the purity of the original.
1: Speaking of purity, a fun fact, Italian regulations require that 50% of a film has to be shot in Italy, so all of the exteriors in this film are in the Bronx. And all of the interiors are shot in Rome. Okay. Fun little factoid to consider when we start watching this movie. Do you have any expectations for this?
2: I'm not really sure. It's not my typical style of movie that I would go watch. But with these hiatus movies that we do, I've watched a lot of movies that I wouldn't normally watch. So my expectation is to be grateful that I've seen a movie outside of my comfort zone. I'm sure that I will be entertained. I think that's really all I'm going for.
1: One of the trailers that I watched seemed very busy. There was a lot happening. There were a lot of very rapid cuts between set pieces and action scenes and dressed up actors in different costumes, and it just seemed very dense. Like, they crammed a lot into this movie. So I'm half expecting it to be just very dense filled with a lot of stuff. And I'm not quite sure how they're all going to fit it in, but they'll probably pull it off. They're fearless Italian director types. You can't go wrong with them. Well, I may be saying that too soon. But either way, we're going to go watch the movie for the first time for both of us. You lovely people get to sit here and listen to the trailer. And when we come back, it will be an hour and a half or so later, and we will have seen the movie, and we will let you know what we think of it.
0: the weapons these are the warriors this is the final battlefield 1990 the bronx warriors they trust no one They fear nothing. They walk with death. Those who follow them will survive. Those who challenge them will die. You will see the future. You will be afraid. The first to die Will be the lucky ones 1990 the bronx warriors they walk with death
1: and we're back so julia initial reaction let me have it
2: initial reaction was that i enjoyed it it flew by really fast we paused it at about the hour mark to take a break and i was surprised that it was the hour mark So that tells me that I was engaged and that the flow was nice so that I was able to stay engaged. How about you?
1: There were some interesting details about this movie. There were things that I kept seeing over the course of this viewing that stuck out in my notes. My initial reaction is that I wasn't disappointed by it. I wasn't necessarily blown away by it. I wouldn't say it's life changing, but it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. I'll say that much.
2: I wasn't expecting it to be bad in any way, and I I wasn't disappointed by that. It wasn't bad in any way. The only thing that was of questionable quality, the dubbing, was not great. And I was surprised by the presence of dubbing at all because the principal actors who are touted as the stars of this film had American names. They were American actors. Well, it turns out Mark Gregory, that's not his real name. That's the Americanized version of his name.
1: Oh, well.
2: His real name is Marco de Gregorio. So he's Italian too. With the trailer, you're led to believe that this is an american movie it's not this is an italian movie that was dubbed over
1: yeah because i had looked at the cast and crew and all that other stuff before the movie i knew it was going to be one of those italian style movies i see this as the urban equivalent of a spaghetti western
2: yes that seems accurate
1: in that it was very italian (laughs) yeah Should we get into the the plot recap? Start blowing through this thing? Yeah. All right. So the first thing you see when you start up 1990, The Bronx Warriors, are the opening credits, which are just a lot of close-ups. Details of jewelry and weapons and faces painted up all fancy-like, and that is our introduction to this world.
2: I really like this introduction mostly for the objects that were shown. Because the objects that were shown, as we're going to learn throughout the movie, are iconic for the different people that we're going to encounter. So if I were to go back and watch the opener again, I would recognize these objects and recognize why they're included in the opener. Now, as far as the people and the faces and the made-up faces, especially that were shown, I think those were included only for a splash of color. It was such a minor part of the movie itself Mm -hmm. that it really has no place in the opener
1: from the opening credits we transition over to a bridge i don't know which bridge exactly but there is a young woman running across the bridge and this is anne she is the heiress to the manhattan corporation which is a big weapons manufacturer or something like that she as we're going to learn over the course of this film, is morally opposed to what the corporation does. And for some reason, she needs to be available to the company when she turns 18. There's some sort of transfer of power where it's very important that she's there and if she's not there that all of these plans are ruined
2: the men who are trying to get her back are any of them her father or are they the caretakers of the company until she turns 18
1: So as far as Anne is concerned, there are two gentlemen that go back and forth talking constantly about getting her back, returning her to the corporation. And I don't remember ever getting a name for either of them. One of them wears dark sunglasses and the other one is a blonde guy with a mustache who I affectionately nicknamed in my notes Blonstache. Ha (laughs) ha ha
2: ha! That's the one who I kind of assumed in the very beginning that that was her father. And then Sunglasses was his head henchman.
1: Something like that. Mm -hmm. It's just not super clear. What's very apparent is that they are the antagonists in this setup, but it's never really laid out exactly what their relation is to her that I was able to catch. So after we see Anne running across the bridge, we get this splash of text that explains to us that the Bronx has been abandoned by normal society and now it's just a no-man's land where all the gangs hang out, which is drastically different from the Bronx of the real world because, you know, borough by borough, New York is just becoming more and more gentrified as the millennials and their avocado toast and their triple lattes move in and put up uh, artisan bookshops and free-range muffins and fancy colored donut shops and bagel factories, you know. None of this gang stuff.
2: You say that like you're not a millennial.
1: I don't claim to not be a millennial. I just am trying to pull all of the millennial stereotypes that I can out of the ethers. I can apply them to the situation. (laughs) I don't keep track of all of those things. But the important thing is that the entire borough of the Bronx is now essentially a wasteland. It's still very much filled with buildings and people wandering about, but it's not a civilized place.
2: Right. There doesn't seem to be any non-affiliated inhabitants.
1: I can think of one non-affiliated inhabitant, and it's the drunk in that one scene when Hammer first shows up.
2: Yes, Very true.
1: He's the only one that I can really think of. We get a taste of what kind of people live in the Bronx as Anne goes into a side alley and she starts getting harassed by a bunch of dudes dressed up to play street hockey. These are the zombies. They are one of the large factions here in the Bronx and they are here to push her around and harass her and molest her in some way, but they don't really get to do much before a bunch of bikers show up and these are are another faction in the Bronx called the Riders. These are the people that we are going to follow throughout the course of this movie and they have very particular weapons. They're I'd say a baseball bat with a big metal spike at the end that seems to be their signature weapon and they proceed to beat up the zombies.
2: Yeah. So in the writers coming on the scene and attacking the zombies seemingly for the purpose of rescuing or counter kidnapping and they have infiltrated the zombies territory which is not made clear right now
1: yeah are, but
2: that's what's happening
1: Was that it did the riders go into zombie territory or did the zombies pass into rider territory
2: the riders went into zombie territory because Anne, the troublemaker that she is, does it again later on in the movie. Because that's the same setting where the zombies beat up, sort of, beat up Trash and kidnap actually successfully kidnap Anne. So I think that's their territory.
1: So the writers just kind of waltz in, beat a bunch of them up, take Anne away, and initially they're wary of her, but she warms up pretty quick to them.
2: Oh, warms up is the way to put it. She is quite attracted to Trash, Mm -hmm. which I certainly can't blame her. Trash is played by Mark Gregory, this Adonis of a man. He's tall and he's got lots of hair and he's very built.
1: While we're talking about Mark Gregory here at this first introduction of his character, obviously, like you said, he's very tall. He's got broad shoulders. He's got a very chiseled abdomen. He is wearing this leather vest and nothing else underneath it. So it is just the deepest of these showing off all of his arms and whatnot. Anne is watching him with a level of admiration or maybe not admiration, maybe just adoration.
2: Adoration, I think is the right word.
1: But when I saw him come on the scene, He reminded me of someone. Did he remind you of anyone in particular?
2: Not right off the bat, but I was curious about him because he has some oddness to his movements. So I did a little bit of Googling and found that somebody else finds him quite similar to Hayden Christensen? Is that what you were thinking too?
1: That is the exact actor I had in mind. Yeah. I spent this whole movie looking at Mark Gregory and thinking, oh my god, he is the spitting image. And I know I'm saying this backwards. Hayden Christensen, as Anakin Skywalker specifically, is the spitting image of Mark Gregory in 1990, The Bronx Warriors.
2: Yes, he is.
1: And It was very distracting.
2: I also found Mark Gregory distracting for a slightly different reason. Yes, he is a very attractive man. We cannot overstate this fact. He is a beautiful, beautiful man. But there's something about his posture and the way that he walks.
1: He holds himself too straight
2: yes and actually that's what got me googling because i thought maybe was he a dancer before he was an actor
1: dancer or a runway model or something along those lines someone that would keep themselves so incredibly just postured yes shoulders back chest forward when he walks he doesn't lead with His shoulders or his... No, he seems to lead with his entire torso at once. And everything just kind of trails behind it.
2: It looks to me like he's walking in high heels.
1: Which I imagine he's probably wearing boots that have a little bit of a heel in them. Because when you're riding a motorcycle with pegs, you wear a boot with a heel. That way it just kind of hooks on the peg and then you don't have to worry about your foot slipping off. Right. But... Aside from his vest and his boots, he's also wearing just the tightest pants I imagine they could put on him. The man has a perpetual wedgie throughout the entirety of this movie.
2: He does. He really, really does, Mm -hmm. which I'm fine with. That didn't distract me at all. His pants didn't distract me
1: at all. I can say that as a male and as someone who has always been catered to as a viewing audience, I mean, I'm a Caucasian male between the ages of 18 and 35. I am the target demographic of Hollywood. I am perfectly fine with eye candy and gazes that are not... For me, I know some guys will flip out if there's anything in a movie that doesn't cater to them specifically, but if a movie like this wants to put one of their actors in a leather vest and really tight jeans for the benefit of the ladies that are watching, go for it. All the more power to you. I do not mind one bit because everybody deserves to have some eye candy from time to time. For instance, during the fight with the zombies, one of the motorcycles, they flip a switch and blades flip out from the front tire of the motorcycle and the guy on the motorcycle runs down a couple of the zombies. He cuts the back of their legs with the blades and then turns around, comes back and cuts their faces open. That's the stuff I like to see.
2: I liked that because it set a certain tone for this movie. That nobody is safe, there could be blood and gore at any moment, this isn't going to be one of those movies where everyone just gets knocked to the ground and then stops fighting. People are going to die.
1: Although the whole get knocked to the ground, stop fighting thing does happen a lot.
2: It does. But also lots of people die. Yeah. yeah Actually, do. most of the people who die are people who are important. The people who are unimportant, just background fighters, they're the ones who fall to the ground and just stop fighting.
1: Yeah. Following this scuffle between the zombies and the writers, Trash, who is the Mark Gregory character, which what a name for a character to just be called Trash...
2: Yeah, and there are a couple times during this movie that other characters throw his name in his face.
1: Yeah, he walks over to Anne and they have this little meat cute moment where he takes this spiked baseball bat and he points it at her face and he's like, What are you doing here? What is your deal? And she's like, Take me to bed or lose me forever.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> What drives me nuts is the movie should have ended right here, right now. He offers to take her back to Manhattan. Do you want me to take you home? And she says no, because she's a spoiled little rich girl who wants to have her way no matter how many lives it costs.
1: There's going to be a scene on a beach. Later in this movie, where we should reevaluate that viewpoint. Yes,
2: I think that viewpoint does need to be reevaluated. That is what I was thinking in that moment. Yeah. She's not as bad as all that.
1: So, long story short, Anne goes with trash and, and we
2: stays with trash.
1: And we cut back to Blonde Stash, who is talking with his cohort, and he needs this whole thing this whole Anne ran away thing to be very hush-hush. He doesn't want it to go out to the press or the cops or anyone like that. He's going to handle this himself with people that he hires. And then we just go to a place by the river. It's kind of a vacant lot. And there's a dude with a drum set just drumming away while all of the riders just arrive.
2: I loved this drummer. I loved that the soundtrack for this scene is diegetic. I loved how random he was. Yeah, he
1: just came out of nowhere. Just you start hearing this drumming and then you see the drummer and you're like, what are you doing out here, man?
2: Yeah. And through all of the drama and conversation and a little bit. Of exposition and setup that happens in this scene, he never stops drumming. He's just jamming. He's he has nothing to do with the parties in this vacant lot that come together and talk. He's just a guy mm-hmm. out there drumming.
1: While he's drumming, we get a montage of shots of different angles on these bikers. It's a big gang. There's a lot of dudes in the riders gang, and they've all got their things that they wear. You've got the leather. you got the helmets. There's one guy with a prosthetic arm. There's a couple of people dressed as Nazis. Pretty sure Ice, the general with the round glasses, I think he wears an SS coat, but there are a couple of other guys that just straight up have swastikas.
2: Yeah. Not, and-
1: not that they are, not that the gang itself is a Nazi gang, but there are Nazis in the gang and Trash has a Confederate flag on his bed.
2: Yes, he does. The ogre who we're about to meet is a black man and Trash doesn't seem to have any problem with that. So I'm not sure what about the confederacy Trash is interested in. But I don't think it's slavery of Africans because he doesn't reflect that in his other behaviors.
1: Trash doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that considers the social ramifications of his interior design choices.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Just like I don't think Ice is wearing an SS coat because he subscribes to the values of the SS, I think he found the coat and liked it. It is a nice coat. It is a nice coat.
1: You strip away the iconography of the Nazi party and it's a very nice coat. So all of these bikers are gathered in this spot because there is a dude impaled on a piece of wood laying next to the water. And I guess he's impaled on a broken pier or something like that. I think so, yeah. So the... This guy is a, you could say, former member of the Riders. In life, he was a rider. Now he is destined to be a passenger. And everyone is very uneasy about this development, the, the death of this character. And from another part of the lot, a bunch of cars pull up, and these are members of the Tigers, gang led by the ogre with the ogre being played by Fred Williamson who is according to his IMDb page a staple of the black exploitation genre in the early 70s
2: I was going to say he looked awfully familiar I'm not a connoisseur of the black exploitation genre but I've seen enough clips and references that that's probably where I've seen his face before
1: He was in the original Inglorious Bastards in 1978 he played Private Fred Canfield. So the ogre has some information for Trash. He shows Trash an oversized electric watch, and he explains that this dead guy was killed because it was discovered that he was wearing an electronic recording device. A gadget, or... They, they call it a gizmo. Gizmo. That's what it is. Say, <laughs> so, As long as he didn't feed it after midnight, he'd be fine. <laughs> but that raises the question, who was this guy spying for? There are people in the writers who think that he was spying for the tigers and that the whole thing where the ogre gave them the watch is just a red herring. But we know as viewers that this guy was spying for the cops in Manhattan because they are trying to find Anne.
2: Anne knows right away that it's because of her. Mm -hmm. Every step along the way that somebody gets hurt because they're looking for her, she says, oh, no, these people were hurt because of me. And she's right. Mm-hmm. So she recognizes right away that the gizmo was tracking
1: her. And we actually see the cops or not even the cops. It's more of a private security force hired by stash But they know that they've lost their informant and they're a bit upset by that. So they dispatch a helicopter to fly over the Bronx. And we get to hear the helicopter pilots complain about the state of the Bronx and how they would just like to napalm it all.
2: Yeah, it really drives home the opinion that non-Bronxers have about Bronxers. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty bad.
1: So we get a quick scene where the Riders gang talk about the dead guy and who was he spying for and they all want to go to war with the Tigers. Trashes. General, I guess, a guy named Ice, played by Joshua Sinclair, he is very much on board with the idea of going to war with the other gangs. They want to solidify their territory and make sure their claim is steadfast and all this other stuff, but Trash is more standoffish about the whole idea. He's not eager to start a war in the Bronx with another gang.
2: I did wonder how it came about that Trash was the leader of the writers. He doesn't seem to be particularly strong. So how, like, I I don't know. He's tall. Well, yeah, but height doesn't make you a good leader.
1: I don't know. I would argue that as we watched him over the course of the movie, he displayed good leadership qualities. He was willing to do the hard things himself and he was a capable fighter when he wanted to be, and he was a good negotiator when he wanted to be. The only time he was ever defeated is when he was vastly outnumbered and disarmed. So that says a lot about him as a capable individual. So there's that. Okay. So we get a different scene. Anne and Trash are in Trash's bedroom, which is just like a bombed out building with graffiti literally everywhere. And Anne explains that there are people that want to take her away, and she wants Trash to promise that that he will not allow her to be taken away. And he's like, well, who's trying to take you? And she's like, no one.
2: Yeah, it annoys me when people aren't honest with the people in their life that are going to suffer because of their dishonesty. Mm -hmm. All she had to do was tell him and he could be prepared. Probably nothing would have changed. But why keep this from him? And it didn't seem like she was keeping it from him for his own protection or because she didn't want to admit it. She was embarrassed or scared. It kind of seemed like she just didn't feel like talking about it.
1: Later on, Trash and others are out riding and they see a couple of these private cops. They're driving around in this big old truck and we get this funny little scene of all of them facing off. The truck goes to follow the motorcycles, but the motorcycles outmaneuver the truck and one of the gang members climb up and spray paints on the front windshield of the truck and we all get a good laugh out of that.
2: Yes, and then nothing ever comes of it and we never see them again. Yep. But I am impressed with that guy's ability to spray paint upside down and backwards Mm -hmm. and have it be a perfectly legible word.
1: Yeah, it was very impressive. In one of the earlier scenes, Blonde Stash mentioned that he was going to dispatch a person named Hammer in order to retrieve Anne. And in the next scene, we get this guy who's more or less dressed like a mailman. He's wearing sunglasses. He's got a big old mustache. I called him Sunglasses Guy for a while before I realized who he is, but this is Hammer, played by Vic Morrow, and he is there specifically to retrieve Anne, and so he goes into the Riders' territory, into their hideout, and before long, he's found by a couple of people, just members of the gang. They're getting busy on a staircase or something like that. Ew. I know, right in the middle of everything.
2: Well, not about the getting busy... They picked like the dirtiest location.
1: I don't think there's anything in the Bronx that's not dirty.
2: But even on the scale for this movie in this location, they picked the dirtiest place to get it on.
1: They try to stop this guy, but the reason he's dressed up as a mailman is because he's got a shotgun hidden inside a mailing tube. And so he kills the two people that tried to stop him, and then he just goes on a sort of hunt through the hideout and he's shooting any of the gang members that he sees. And though they give chase and try and track him down, he eventually gets away.
2: Yeah. He gets away because they get distracted by a semi, not with a trailer on it, but a semi that's driving through the streets, they think that the killer is in the semi, so they go after the semi. Mm-hmm. Well, the killer's gone off in a different direction, so it's really just dumb luck that he got away.
1: I wouldn't say it's dumb luck that Hammer got away. Hammer, very specifically, is working with the driver of that truck, as we're about to find out.
2: Really? Because I at that time, I didn't think he already was. I thought no, the agreement... He- wasn't created until after this
1: scene. No, Hammer and the guy we'll meet in a moment named Hot Dog were always working together, as far as I've understood. Okay. Because Hot Dog picks up Hammer as he's escaping the hideout, and then he stops in a tunnel and lets Hammer out, and then Hot Dog keeps going, and then they just keep following the truck.
2: Did I miss that?
1: You might have. It was very quick. The shot of Hammer climbing a ladder to hide in the shadows, and then the bikes keep going after the truck.
2: Okay, that makes sense. I was always just a little tiny bit confused about the relationship between Hammer and Hot Dog. They don't seem to be happily working together.
1: I don't know if... Okay. I don't know if Hot Dog ever gets the long end of the stick in any of these situations, because the riders pull him over and try to interrogate him. There's a funny little instance where... Hot Dog opens the door to his cab and kicks ice in the face. And Hot Dog has this really thick-soled shoe. The idea is that he's got one leg that's longer than the other, but the actor doesn't have one leg longer than the other, so he spends the whole time limping around because one of his shoes is too tall. Really strange.
2: Okay. So Ice seems to have a grudge against Hot Dog. Is that just because of the kick in the face? Possibly. They seem to have some kind of history, but it was really hard to tell.
1: It seemed to me that there was an implied prehistory. Yeah. But if there was dialogue, I might have missed it because I was writing down notes about the summary. I'm not quite sure. But Trash dispatches some of his guys to look around the area while he's searches hot dogs truck and he doesn't really find anything it's very unsatisfying and when they get back to the hideout they realize that a ring was left behind next to the two killed people and it is a ring From the Tigers gang.
2: Yes, that we saw Hammer leave behind. Mm
1: -hmm. So they have a funeral for the people that are killed. They put them on a pyre. They burn them down. They collect their ashes.
2: This scene reminded me of a similar scene in...
1: Any of the Star Wars movies where Anakin Skywalker watches someone's body burn?
2: (laughs) Well, yes, that's true. But... It reminded me of the funeral scene from Stone where we took time out of the narrative of the movie to show a fairly moving and very sincere funeral scene.
1: I like the funeral scene in this movie because after they collect up the ashes, they go over to the river and each member of the gang takes a handful of ashes and tosses it over the water. Yeah. It looks very meaningful to me.
2: That's something that can be portrayed very easily and very well in movies about gang life is... That they are like family to each other. And that can be a detriment and also a help. A detriment because they can overreact and go for revenge and then start gang wars. But the other side of that is that when somebody dies, they have a funeral that is very meaningful for them all because they are so close.
1: Yeah, there is that way that movies love to romanticize the idea of being in a gang.
2: Yes, very much.
1: One thing that I forgot to mention before we started the funeral scene is that Anne once again blames herself for people getting hurt and she says it that she blames herself she wonders if these people would have been killed if she had not shown up to hang out with the writers and trash is like oh don't blame yourself there's no way that you were involved in this this is this is totally a different thing altogether I actually
2: like what he says. And if I was taking notes, I would have written it down because I can't remember exactly what it was word for word. But basically what he says is that in a place like this, bad things are going to happen no matter what.
1: That's true. That's another thing that he expounds upon at the beach scene. Yes. After the funeral scene, we get another cut over to Hammer, who is talking to Blonde stash and Blonde stash is just very impatient about the whole situation. That's all we get out of them before we cut back to another gang meeting for the Riders, where they're once again talking about going to war. And with the evidence of the ring from the Tigers, Ice is very insistent about the whole... Let's go to war thing. And once again, Trash is just not sure about this whole gang war situation. He feels there's something fishy going on.
2: This scene did feel a little bit stereotypical of... A gang movie where the leader feels one way and one of his lieutenants disagrees and you can kind of see the path that it's going down mm-hmm. where that lieutenant is going to go rogue and that's exactly what happens
1: while the gang is talking about all of this they realize that ann isn't around because ann took one of the motorcycles and went off joyriding and so Trash decides to head out and see if he can go find her.
2: Yeah, Anne is stupid, and Joy rides right through zombie territory.
1: Mm-hmm. We get another scene where Hammer goes back to meet Hot Dog, and it's here that we get the clear-cut explanation of how important Anne is to the Manhattan Corporation, which, when the gang refers to the business of the Manhattan Corporation, you could almost imagine that they're calling it that because it's a nickname they're giving it. But when Hammer and Hot Dog talk about it, it gives the idea that the company that she's trying to get away with is just literally called the Manhattan Corporation.
2: Yes, and we know that they are weapons developers or manufacturers, right?
1: I think they're involved with 60% of the weapons manufacturing in the world or something ridiculous like that. That's a lot. Yeah.
2: So when they say Manhattan Corporation. I think they're referring less to the island and more to the Manhattan Project.
1: Yeah, the whole thing is glossed over and hand-waved. The idea is, okay, this is the premise. Just go with it. Just just follow us. Yeah. Type of thing. It's here that we get the scene on the beach. Anne has decided she needs to go think, and so she goes off on the beach by herself, and Trash goes there to talk to her, and Anne wants to just leave. She wants to get away from the gang because she's starting to like these people, and she doesn't want to see them get Get hurt and of course trash shows up and he's like you say you
0: want us all to be safe but i think you want to leave because you don't want to be with me anymore
2: <laughs> and something else that he said stood out to me he was talking about being willing to die for her and he says if i die for you then at least my life will have some purpose yeah which is I suppose it's a nice sentiment.
1: Yeah. But yeah. It got a little too much Hayden Christensen for me. I half expected him to launch into one of those like, you know, I don't know if you know what you do to me. I'm haunted by that kiss you never should have given me. I don't like sand and I like you. You're smooth and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Just mopey Anakin stuff.
2: I can sympathize with you on that, but Trash is not a complainer. He's not like a happy, little go lucky kind of guy. Oh,
1: no. He has that whole thing about, you know, we walk with death. We live with death. Death sleeps with us. Death chips in for lunch when we go to the diner. It's just talking about how much they live with death on a daily basis. That's sort of his mantra.
2: Is that on the beach that he said that?
1: Yeah, that was on the beach. (gasps) Where
2: was I?
1: I don't know. You were probably thinking about going to the bathroom or something like that. (laughs) Because that's why... It's so significant at the end of the movie when Anne mentions something about it's okay. We live with death all the time. It was a callback to this scene.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I didn't understand her words there at the end. (laughs)
1: okay (laughs) but she tells trash about her relationship to the corporation and how she just wants to get away she cannot stomach the idea of being a corporate puppet to these people because i guess that's just how this corporation works i don't think that's how normal corporations work unless i'm mistaken i don't think there's any sort of when the daughter of the company man turns 18 transfers automatically over to her and but she, it's only a nominal position or something like that. It's not entirely how things work as far as I understand it.
2: I think they were going for a modern day analogy to a kingdom and the throne. She is the underage heir to the throne. The king and queen are dead so there is a stewardship going on. Someone else is running the company in her stead until she is old enough. Once she turns 18, she now sits on the throne but she's young and impressionable and weak and the people who have been running the company want to keep running the company so they're just going to use her as a puppet and control her and intimidate her into doing what they want them to do
1: yeah that reminds me she's supposed to be 17
2: yeah no
1: she is so not seventeen.
2: i would believe it if you told me she was Over 30.
1: Yeah, she was born, according to IMDb, in 1963, which means that by 1982, she was already...
2: No, she was like 20. 63, so 73, 83. She was only like 20.
1: Yeah. Okay. She was like 19, 20 years old okay playing 17
2: well that's not as bad i think she looks older than she is
1: yeah she does but it also implies that if she was hanging out with trash doing things that bikers do like yeah sure it's probably a different time when they made this movie but come on dude like wait until she's 18 i'd be a creep
2: don't think anybody cares
1: yeah i don't think anybody cares but i care i care Okay. I care.
2: While we're on the topic of her age and her inheritance, if you want this young woman to own this company and run this company, don't you think you should send her to college first?
1: Yeah, I think she was sent to some sort of like boarding house and she escaped the boarding house.
2: Right. Well, I took it like a prep school.
1: Yeah, something like that.
2: Yeah, because. I would assume that she'd be going to the finest prep school in New York, which sounds like that's probably exactly where she was. But if she's going to run this company, she needs to go get educated, like college educated.
1: Well, if she's not 18 yet, she probably wouldn't be going to college.
2: No, I mean, she shouldn't be taking over at 18. She shouldn't be taking over till she's like 25 and has been through college. Well,
1: that's why that part of the plot is ridiculous. That's what we've been saying.
2: (laughs) No, it's not what we've been saying. You have not brought up her education at all.
1: No, I've been saying that that's not how businesses work. You don't just give an 18-year-old control of the business when they turn 18 because that's not how businesses work. Your point is in addition to that. Fine. I mean, I'm still agreeing with you.
2: No, you're agreeing with me making it sound like you already made my point, but let's move on.
1: Yeah, long story short, the whole Anne taking over the company thing is just ridiculous on several different levels. So Anne and Trash decide to go back, rejoin the gang but as they leave the beach they find that their way is blocked by a bunch of debris because the zombies have blocked their path and they ambush them
2: without condoning violence and kidnapping the zombies kind of have a right to do what they do
1: it is their territory Uh,
2: yeah trash and ann this is the second time that they have invaded their territory so yeah i'm i'm kind of good with this
1: Trash gets a net dropped on him and then he gets the tar beaten out of him. Not re- I wouldn't even say they had the tar beaten out. He's, he gets kicked a couple of times. He
2: gets distracted long enough for them to kidnap Anne. Yeah. I think they're butt hurt that they didn't get to kidnap Anne the first time. They don't even know who she is. They just want her because she wandered into their area mm-hmm. and then was taken away from them and they get another chance. So they want her. I don't think they really care that much about Trash.
1: Trash eventually does make it back to the riders, though, and it's here that he's like, they've taken Anne, I need to go save her. I'm going to go to Ogre and forge an alliance so that we can take on the zombies. And the rest of the gang is like, huh, what? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense.
2: I think it does make sense. From the gang members' point of view, it could be seen, I think, as a weakness. Trash is saying, we and I am not strong enough to take on the zombies and get back in on our own. We need the help of somebody who is stronger than us. Mm-hmm. So the Joe Schmo in the gang is like, wait, what? So much for our big, strong, fearless leader. He can't do it on his own. <laughs> yeah, There are people in the gang who are on Trash's side and are completely and thoroughly loyal to him, though. It's not like everybody is like, wait, what?
1: Yeah. So Trash takes a couple of guys and they head off into enemy territory they need to get from rider territory over to tiger's territory and in order to do that they need to pass through the territory of some other minor gangs and oh dear the first gang that they come across is something straight out of a chorus line
2: literally it's like broadway no longer exists in manhattan so all of the broadway performers went and formed a gang in the bronx
1: and they have Fancy dance moves that they do, and their way of fighting involves a lot of high kicks and a lot of pirouetting. Uh huh. It's so over the top. These are the people with the painted faces that we saw in the opening credits.
2: Yeah, they're in the movie for like a minute, maybe a maybe. minute and a half. Yeah, and they are featured heavily in the opener.
1: Mm-hmm. Their leader, especially, gets her fair share of screen time. I'd say because she singles out trash to ask him why he's there and figure out why he's passing through their territory. And she eventually gives him clearance to pass because she has a shine for him.
2: Yeah. These gang leaders know each other by name. Yeah. So I imagine in my head that there are occasional gang leader meetings.
1: Like a the, community watch?
2: Yeah, where all the leaders gather together, probably under the umbrella of the ogre, since he seems to be the leader of the leaders, and they confer and check up on the state of the Bronx and maybe negotiate trade mm-hmm. and boundaries And whatnot, because, yeah, they seem to know each other fairly well.
1: Yeah, even if they don't do that, at least you've got reputation to go on. Yes. Did you notice the leader of these dancers, when she was walking around trash, she wasn't walking, she was doing little kickball changes?
2: Yeah, she was dancing. Mm Mm-hmm. Which... Made me smile because the dancing that she was doing and also the dancing that her chorus line warriors were doing was in time to the music playing in the background, but the music wasn't diegetic. We were hearing the music, they were not. So they were dancing to no music at all.
1: Very strange. Mm-hmm. But they get to pass, and that's the important thing for now. Back at the rider territory, Hot Dog lures out Ice to persuade him to turn on Trash. And one of the other riders decides to follow Ice. Now, I didn't catch this guy's name. I just nicknamed him Lieutenant Dangle because he reminded me of Thomas Lennon from Reno 911.
2: Oh, I thought him uh, as Discount Freddie Mercury.
1: That works too. While Ice is heading out to have a secret meeting with Hot Dog, we see that Trash and his guys are moving through scavenger territory. These scavengers are basically sand people.
2: Yeah, they really are. I have a question about their evolutionary sophistication.
1: Yeah, because they act like animals.
2: They do. They really, really do. They walk around almost on all fours, like hunched over, like in perpetual hunting mode
1: mm-hmm. with they
2: lots of grunts and moans and just noises. Yeah,
1: they essentially fight with two by fours. They wear rags. They're animals, basically. They mm-hmm. still manage to kill one of Trash's guys. Oh, they're guys. vicious. Yeah.
2: They also eventually down the road kill Discount Freddie Mercury, and it's one of the saddest scenes of the movie.
1: Yeah. They
2: are very vicious. They are a much more prominent opposing gang than the Jazz Gang.
1: Oh, absolutely. But they're not quite as flashy, so you probably don't want to show them off too much in the opener. Going back to what Ice is doing, he catches up with Hot Dog and lo and behold, it's not just Hot Dog that he's meeting with, he's also meeting with Hammer. And Ice reveals to them that Anne was taken by the zombies. That is exactly where she is. And Hot Dog and Hammer convince Ice to just take a gun, kill Trash, and kill the ogre. And then they'll take Anne back and everyone will walk away a little richer.
2: Yep, and Ice can then be in control of... The Riders and maybe even the Tigers?
1: Maybe. If he can secure both of those territories, he's ambitious enough to try. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Hot Dog catches sight of Lieutenant Dangle, who is just leaning out a window, listening to all of them. And though Discount Freddie Mercury tries to run, they still see him and Ice tries to chase him. He does try. And I don't know if this was planned. I don't know if this was real i think it was real. real dangle goes up over a sidewalk and into a building and ice goes to follow him and his back tire slips on some loose gravel or dirt or something like that it catches on the sidewalk kicks back in the other direction and the entire back end of the motorcycle shoots out from under the actor playing ice and he goes down hard he
2: really does. It looked real.
1: It was worryingly real. Yes. And I'm willing to bet it was.
2: So the rest of the storyline with Ice and Dangle, they are separated. They mm-hmm. go in their separate directions. So I think it's in the script as they get separated somehow Ice stops chasing Dangle, but I'm not sure it was supposed to happen that way.
1: Yeah. Discount Freddy Mercury really doesn't last too much longer because he runs into scavenger territory and starts shouting after trash, and the scavengers descend on him. Yeah, it's pretty in rough. Force.
2: And that's where we leave him for a while, not really knowing the outcome of his fight with them
1: Mm -hmm. one thing that's kind of out of the blue hammer shows up to follow very closely behind trash
2: oh my gosh it's one of those things like from the emperor's new groove where we look at the map and there's no way that he is able to be there that fast that's absolutely the case yeah he shows up mere feet behind trash it's impossible
1: the only way it could work is if you rely on the whole idea of Hammer growing up and being born in the Bronx. They That's keep right. mentioning that as a detail that, oh, Hammer grew up in the Bronx. Hammer knows the Bronx better than anybody.
2: So he knew a shortcut.
1: He must have. That's got to be the only thing.
2: A deeper level of the sewers.
1: Exactly.
2: Okay. I guess I can buy that.
1: Mm-hmm. So... Trash and his remaining crony sneak into the ogre's castle because this building is practically a castle. And we get to see that the ogre is sending supplies around the borough. He's got medical supplies and gasoline and electrical supplies. And he's just telling people, send this to this neighborhood. Send this to that neighborhood. Send this over to that street. He considers himself king of the Bronx and... He provides for his people. Yeah.
2: I was... I'm glad this scene was included because I was wondering where do they get the fuel for their motorcycles? Where do they get food? There is never any food in this movie. We never see them eating or drinking anything. Their clothes are clean. Their hair is clean. Where are they getting all of the supplies? Because the Bronx isn't like just another neighborhood that's particularly run down. No, it's completely cut off. There's no corner store. There's no factories. There's nothing there except these gangs. Yeah,
1: you can't pop down to the bodega for a Kit Kat and a gallon of milk.
2: Yeah, there's no restaurants not even the simple like mom and pop diner. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's the ogre bringing in supplies and dispersing them in exchange for the loyalty of the people, which doesn't really seem to get him very far.
1: Yeah. So as Trash and his guy are sneaking around the ogre's hideout, they are followed inside by Hammer. And when Trash is stopped by one of the tiger gang hammer pops out from the shadows and uses a weapon that he was given by ice to kill the tiger's gang member thereby making it look like trash was the one that snuck into ogre's house and killed one of his guys
2: yeah every member of the gang has that baseball bat with a sharpened end it's painted black and it's got some silver studding on it they all have the same item it's like the ring that hammer left behind when he killed the two people in the hideout.
1: Exactly. He's
2: blaming the murders on somebody else.
1: So Trash actually gets a little bit of face-to-face time with Hammer in this scene, and he jabs at him a little bit. The whole idea of, like, you want everyone to forget the fact that you grew up in the Bronx and you think you're so much better than everyone because you left and things like that. Hammer fires back with, oh, no, once I'm done, no one is going to be able to forget that I know everything about the Bronx.
2: Hammer makes it clear ish that he doesn't really have an interest in the mission of rescuing Anne. yeah his desire seems to be just revenge and destroying the whole place and he's using the funds that blonde gave him and the tools at his disposal to accomplish that under the guise of getting Anne out of there
1: mm-hmm. so hammer sneaks away trash is taken by the ogre's men and hammer Steps off to the side, pulls out his gigantic brick phone and calls up Hot Dog, say, hey, I'm coming. Be ready to pick me up. And then he just Wild West style shoots a bunch of scavengers that are trying to sneak up on him. And he's like, you can't do that to me. I'm a hammer.
2: I found this annoying simply because he's the bad guy and I don't want him to do something so cool. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Trash has this face-to-face with the ogre. The ogre is like, hey, you killed one of my dudes. And Trash is like, no, it was Hammer. You got to believe me. He's after my girl. And he wants to take her away and he's going to send a bunch of Manhattan goons in here to wreck the place up and we got to work together. Go to zombie territory.
2: And Ogre says, okay, I believe you. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I appreciate that the people involved so heavily have enough of a head on their shoulders to say, oh, you were set up? Yeah, that sounds about right. I believe you that you were set up.
1: Yeah, it's kind of nice.
2: It is. Now, a person we haven't mentioned yet which is a shame is which?
1: Yeah, she really shows up when the ogre is sending supplies to different parts of the city.
2: She seems to be his first lieutenant.
1: Yeah, she has a cape and this like leather bikini type thing and Corset. she wears tights um yeah i don't know the ins and outs of women's fashion i'm not like that but her signature weapon is a whip but she also has these like metal stabbing ring things Mm -hmm. that she wears she's pretty awesome she is yeah she's played by an actress named betty desi and this is essentially the only thing she ever did
2: yeah (laughs) yeah that doesn't really surprise me her acting wasn't stellar it was pretty on par with a lot of the other acting that wasn't stellar, Mm -hmm. but her character was pretty spectacular.
1: Yeah, she had some really cool moments. Yeah. So once Trash and Ogre are able to patch things up, we see that Ice has gone to the zombies, and he is trying to just convince the leader of the zombies, a big old guy named Golan, who wears this outlandish red outfit with this big hair situation that's going on. It's really just... Out there. The zombies are really something else.
2: Golan, if this movie were remade today, Jason Momoa would play Golan.
1: (laughs) I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Rejoining Trash and Ogre and Witch. You would expect them, if they are heading over to zombie territory, to maybe go in force maybe hop in a car, maybe hop in several cars, maybe take more than just the three of them to assault someone else's fortress.
2: Yeah. Okay, your problem with this scene was very different than my problem with this scene. I was okay with them going just the three of them. My problem is that they were immediately attacked ogre is the leader of the gang that is most prominent among all the other gangs yeah
1: he considers himself the king of the Bronx
2: right he provides for the entire Bronx that position commands a certain amount of respect One and you would think that that would extend beyond his throne room the moment he leaves his throne room he gets attacked by the scavengers.
1: Well, you know, it's like they say, some people are always just trying to ice skate uphill.
2: I don't think the scavengers are part of, we'll call it the Confederacy of Gangs. (laughs) I think their name implies that they don't receive goods, they scavenge goods. They're
1: kind of like a bunch of bottom feeder, Morlock type situation, huh?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Because attacking the ogre is pretty bold and the way ogre and witch dispatch The scavengers is brutal.
2: It is. We finally get to see witches stabby stab
1: rings
2: (laughs) come into play. So when she puts her hands into a fist, the way the rings are positioned, they're now basically just knives sticking out from her knuckles. Mm -hmm. And she like just punches one of them in the gut and therefore stabbing him. Yeah, She's got blood all over them. It's pretty great.
1: Amidst all of this fighting and technically before the fighting even starts, but I have chicken scratch for notes. Trash finds his buddy, Discount Freddie Mercury, The guy I called Lieutenant Dangle, which just really seems in poor taste to be calling him that because trash finds him strung up in the catacombs and he has been just wrecked. Yeah, It looks like there is a bite taken out of his wrist.
2: Oh, you think it looks like a bite? I thought it looked like a... What's the kind of f- bone break where the bone actually sticks out of the skin?
1: Compound fracture.
2: It was a compound fracture of it, his...
1: Don't ask me what bone that is in a forearm. because
2: Forearm bone.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. It looked to me like a bite, which kind of tells me that the scavengers are not only feral humans, but they're also somewhat cannibalistic, which makes sense to me. Why not?
2: Yeah, because cannibalism does things to your brain.
1: But this guy is able to reveal Ice's betrayal, and he is hanging there suffering, and then Trash has to do the very difficult task of putting Discount Freddie Mercury out of his misery, and he snaps his neck.
2: Yeah, he asks him to. He says, Trash, I can't take it anymore, and... Trash snaps his neck.
1: Yeah, we get to see Trash very emotional.
2: Yep, they're both crying.
1: Crying man tears. Mm -hmm. In the fight that ensues... Trash is quickly overwhelmed by several scavengers and Ogre comes in and just freaking cuts the head off of one of the scavengers. Yeah. Beheads him. Ogre is such a badass.
2: He really is. He earned his position the hard way. Yeah. I guess we can compare Ogre to Anne where Anne doesn't want the leadership position but it's being forced upon her and she will be a weak and pointless leader and she knows it as opposed to Ogre who had to earn his place and we are seeing why he earned that place. Mm-hmm.
1: Elsewhere in the city, Hammer is talking to Blonde stash and they decide that they will blow into the hideouts and they will burn the place to the ground and take Anne out in a helicopter and that will be it. And it'll be super easy and they'll have no problem doing it.
2: I think I missed when Blonde stash decided that there had to be no witnesses to Anne's presence there. I thought that that was Hammer's ulterior motive. Nope. But... Blonde Stash wants him to do it. Yeah. Uh, why?
1: Because no witnesses. There's no one to go to the press, no one to go to the public to talk about this whole heiress running away to hide with bikers situation. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. Okay. And that's just what it is. As far it's
2: awfully as- dramatic, but okay.
1: Well, I- Certainly, hope it would be dramatic. So, Trash, Ogre, and Witch, they show up in zombie territory, and Golan is there. He and Ogre have a couple of words, and Golan is very high on his own supply. He is in his home turf, he is convinced that he is above whatever sort of loyalty that he owes to Ogre.
2: That's partially Ice's fault because Ice was trying to form an alliance with Golan, say, hey, let's kill Trash and let's kill the Ogre and then we can take over. Mm -hmm. So it's really Ice that's causing a lot of the problems now.
1: Yeah. So a fight breaks out between Ogre and Golan and just Golan gets straight up stabbed in the back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I should clarify, Golan tries to stab Ogre with a knife, and Ogre grabs Golan's arm, twists it around, and stabs that knife into Golan's back. So Golan is killed on his own weapon. It's a very cool move. Then, of course, Trash and Witch are there to help fight, too. Yep. (laughs) Amidst all of the fighting, Ice tries to sneak away, and he's confronted by Hot Dog. Apparently, Ice's involvement with all of this means that Hot Dog won't get paid somehow.
2: Well, anytime Hot Dog brought up money to Hammer, Hammer was like, I don't want to hear you talking like that. Don't talk to me that way. Mm -hmm. So I think Hammer is a sick, sick man who is controlling Hot Dog in a way that I don't understand and it's not with money.
1: Yeah, so Ice tries to shoot Hot Dog with a gun that Hot Dog gave him earlier in the movie. Yeah. Except the gun is loaded with blanks, so it doesn't do anything.
2: So Hot Dog uh, gets a little cocky.
1: And then Ice produces a knife blade out of the front of his shoe, like in a James Bond movie, and kicks Hot Dog in the stomach, killing him.
2: The way they shot it was they showed the blade popping out the front of the boot, and then they showed the boot hitting Hot Dog in the stomach. I wish that they had shown the entire shot. I wanted to see him kick him in the stomach. Mm -hmm. And they just blew right past it. Just, oh, okay, fine. Hot Dog's dead now. Without getting to see the cool way in which he was killed.
1: Trash is able to free Anne, and they go after Ice, who is run off, and Ice Tries to talk to Trash, but Trash knows about his treachery, and so they fight a little bit. And Trash just ends up throwing ice off of a ledge, and ice just lands on a spike.
2: Mm hmm. We're definitely in a certain phase of the film where the people who aren't going to survive the film are being removed. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, Because we need to get rid of other people in the way so that way we can refocus on the main plot involving the corporate people. We've been getting sidetracked with all of these little gang squabbles and we need to get the gang squabbles out of the way so that we can take Ogre, Witch, Trash, and Anne and go back to the Ogre's castle so that they can have a birthday party for Anne.
2: Okay, the most random birthday party ever. Mm-hmm. I like that we get a scene where after all of the drama and the climax is over and the violence is done, we go back to the Ogre's Castle and everyone's sitting around enjoying listening to Anne play the piano. Because, of course, she plays the piano. She's an heiress.
1: Unfortunately for them, they don't know that there is a small private military assembling outside of the hideout led by Hammer.
2: Yeah, this assault on the Bronx is
1: strange horseback flamethrowers
2: yeah horseback flamethrowers do you see the horses were wearing armor Yeah. Yep.
1: You could tell that these guys were privately funded. Yes.
2: (laughs) Now, the uh, helicopter guys that we were listening to their conversation earlier had a good point about just napalming the whole place. Maybe a more effective way to kill everybody. Did they want to kill everybody in the Bronx or just everybody in the castle?
1: The guys in the helicopter wanted to kill everybody in the bronx the guys assaulting the castle just wanted to kill everybody but am
2: in the castle or in the bronx
1: in the castle
2: okay an aerial assault to start with and then sending in men to clean up afterwards might have been more effective
1: the problem with just dropping things on is that you might get collateral damage which is exactly what happens there is this assault on the fortress everybody is fighting there are flamethrowers going off everywhere it's incredibly chaotic Ogre is shot, witch is shot. Ogre goes out like a a boss though. He's shot multiple times in the back and then he crawls back over to his throne and everything is burning around him and he puts a single cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. And he just goes out like a boss. It's yeah, awesome.
2: It's pretty badass.
1: Meanwhile, Trash and Anne are just kind of hanging out on the sidelines.
2: Yeah, they're just kind of hiding out of view. So they're not being targeted, but it's pretty chaotic around them. Yeah.
1: Until one of the soldiers sees them. Trash has his back turned, but Anne sees it. So Anne leaps in front of Trash and the soldier shoots her. So all of this... Is now pointless. Yep, because she is dead. She is the only one that needed to survive. Only one, and it, now, yeah. she, and she gets this death scene where she's laying there in Trash's arms, and that's where she's like, "We walk with death every day," or something like that, calling back to the beach scene.
2: Okay, now and now that I know that she's calling back to the beach scene, her death scene makes a little bit more sense. Yeah me
1: so spurred on by the sorrow of Anne's death trash grabs a harpoon i think it's a yeah i think it's a grappling hook harpoon thing and he shoots hammer in the chest and then attaches the rope to the back of his motorcycle and we end the movie with trash riding away dragging hammer behind him
2: based on the end of the movie it's quite possible that Trash is the only person in that castle to have survived
1: I think he's the only person that we cared about in this movie that survived this movie
2: yeah Someone that I don't recall what happened to them. When Trash left to make the journey to go see the ogre, he had two guys with him. One of them was killed by the scavengers. Whatever happened to the other guy with the beret? I don't remember. Yeah, he just kind of stopped being around at some point. But I can't remember if we saw him get killed or we saw him being sent off to do something else. I think he just stopped being around.
1: Yeah, like I said, I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, that's 1990 The Bronx Warriors for you. Yeah. So here, after going through it again, was there anything that stood out as your favorite part?
2: The ogre. I think the ogre was my favorite part. He was an obvious leader. He had control of his dominion. He demanded loyalty, but it wasn't blind loyalty. He earned it, and he provided for his people. And he also had a certain style about him he was very flamboyant he died wearing a puffy shirt which was a it was a pink or red i
1: think it was red
2: red yeah and leather pants Mm -hmm. and he had a fantastic lieutenant who was very calm and composed and organized she was taking notes about stuff and badass in her own right yeah i think he was my favorite part what about you
1: hmm well since you beat me to the ogre (laughs) I liked all the motorcycles. I like motorcycles. I like it when the main characters of the movie are in a motorcycle gang. It was very reminiscent of Stone. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I liked that there was a little bit of political intrigue inside the Riders gang. That you had Ice doing his own machinations behind Trash's back. And that there were people loyal to Trash that were spying on Ice. And vice versa with the whole communicator watch thing i found the gang to be very interesting
2: yeah with the motorcycles i really enjoyed their skill in writing they made it look easy
1: except for that one scene where ice totally <laughs> wipes out
2: yeah really really except for that scene there were often times where they were riding in less than ideal conditions like through narrow alleyways and doorways and through dirt and whatnot And those are not great places to ride, but they made it look easy. Mm -hmm. They were very, very skilled riders.
1: Yeah. And they had these cool light up skulls on the front of their bikes. Yes. They're pretty cool. Yeah. I wouldn't want one, but it looked pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Did anything stand out as your least favorite thing?
2: The dubbing. It seemed to me that the dubbing got worse through the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. To the point at the end, it was distracting. At the beginning, it really wasn't that bad. It wasn't distracting to me in the beginning, but I swear it got worse. Mm. Or maybe it was just wearing on me to the point where I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm just paying attention to that now." It was distracting.
1: The dubbing is a problem for me as well just because it doesn't afford the actors the ability to properly portray their characters the people who come in and do the afterdub just don't have the same level of commitment to the story that i would expect them to and i feel like the portrayals are diminished because of those dubs
2: you're right the emotional context was lacking
1: if i had to pick a least favorite part of this movie it's that it didn't deliver enough on the variety of gangs the idea that you show up you've got the zombies The Riders, the Tigers, the Scavengers, whatever the heck those dancers were called. They were distinct, but I don't know why the dancers were in there. I guess I understand why the Scavengers were in there. I guess I feel like there either aren't enough or there are too many different gangs. I would have been happy with just three gangs. Riders, Zombies, Tigers. I would have been fine with that.
2: I think the Scavengers need to be there because they play an important part. Hmm. The Jazz do not need to be in there at all.
1: Yeah, I found them a bit ridiculous and rather pointless. Yeah,
2: it didn't serve any point to the plot.
1: I could very easily take that scene completely out of the film and it would not diminish it at all
2: nope and in fact when when dangle freddie mercury is chasing after trash to warn him about ice he skips the jazz gang altogether
0: Mm -hmm. doesn't even have to worry about him yeah
2: he goes straight to the scavengers
1: so here at the end of everything do you have any final thoughts or recommendations regarding this movie
2: i liked it it's not on my top 10 list But I enjoyed it. I would not mind at all seeing the next two films (laughs) in this trilogy. I would recommend people go out and watch it. It's not for everybody. But if you have an interest in how modern cinema got to where it is, then you should go watch this movie. Hmm. It is a cinema history movie and it's in the middle of cinema history. It is influenced by older movies that we know and enjoy and it influences further movies down the road. So it is a piece to that puzzle and if you're interested in putting that puzzle together you should watch this movie.
1: I am also not upset that we watched this movie. I do not consider this an hour and a half wasted. I found a lot of things that I could appreciate. I'm not the kind of person that seeks out italian cinema especially when it's dubbed but i'm the kind of person that can appreciate it without italian cinema we never would have had the good the bad and the ugly yeah any of those spaghetti westerns or anything like that what i will say is that if you are sitting there and you have the desire to watch any of those movies that i mentioned at the top of this episode mad max 2 the warriors escape from new york if you have the hankering to watch all three of those movies but you have less than two hours available to you, pop in 1990 The Bronx Warriors, and that will scratch the itch of all of those three movies in a little over 90 minutes yeah it's not bad so I'm glad that we watched it thank you very much to Curtis Blaze our $5 level contributor on our Patreon page for suggesting it to us and as for us we will be back in two weeks with another hiatus episode keep an eye on our Facebook page for more information about that The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
2: The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. 1990 The Bronx Warriors is presented by Deaf International Film SRL.
1: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com
2: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
1: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com where you can check out our T public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link.
2: Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. See you next time.